This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. everyone and welcome to the podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber from Healthcare News. I want to talk today about the FDA and what role it has had in fueling the opiate epidemic. Now, we're going to talk about one particular drug, a drug called Toradol. My guest today recently wrote about this drug in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. This is a fascinating story because not only does it explain how the FDA's action on this drug uh, might have led to the opiate crisis. It's it's a tale on just how the FDA can operate. I, you think you have this big, powerful agency with all this oversight, and then sometimes decision making decisions that impact millions of people come down to one person. The author of the article is Charles Hooper. He is the president of Objective Insights, a consulting firm in healthcare, and he's also the author of the book, Should the FDA Reject Itself? That's a great title. Welcome, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Anne-Marie. It's, it's great to be here. All right, let, let's set this up a little bit, give our listeners some context. Now, your article discusses this drug called Toradol, which is a non-addictive painkiller. And what got your goat was a remark by FDA Commissioner Robert Califf before a Senate subcommittee in April. And he was complaining that pharma has yet to invent such a non-addictive painkiller. And you're saying, no, this is not true. This was done, but it didn't succeed because of what the FDA did with the approval. Now, tell us, what is Toradol and why do we not hear anything about this drug? In your article, you say it's a drug that should be in every medicine cabinet. Yeah, and I I do think that it should be in everybody's um, medicine cabinet. And so Toradol is an analgesic. It's a it's a pain reliever, and there are two basic categories of, of of drugs that are pain relievers. The first is opioids, and and most of us are pretty familiar with opioids, especially given the fact that it's been in the news with all the deaths and the abuse. Um, but opioids such as morphine, while they're great at relieving pain, uh, they do have problems. such as addiction, abuse, respiratory depression, nausea, constipation, drowsiness, confusion, disorientation, I can go on. And so so they're they're great, but they have problems. Uh, Then the second class of drugs is called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, typically shortened to be NSAID or NSAID. And these are one of the most widely used classes of drugs uh, in the country, and many of, many of us have used them many times. Um, and these drugs include aspirin, Advil, Motrin, the generic name, ibuprofen, um, Aleve. You know, there's a whole number of drugs in this class. And they don't have any of the problems that the opioids have with addiction <clears throat> and abuse. The, the problem that they have is is that they can cause gastrointestinal bleeding. And, and it's a class effect. All the drugs in, in the class have this problem. So some, some people who use them can be sent to the hospital or even die from these problems. So, 
So three decades ago, I worked at a company called Syntex Labs, and Syntex was a leader in this field. And so if you've ever taken the drug Aleve, um, that is a Syntex drug. Um, but Syntex kept researching um, in this area, and it came up with a new drug called Tordol. That's the brand name. And the generic name uh, is Ketorolac. And so Tordol is in the NSAID class, but it's a, it's a unicorn. So it has pain relief comparable to morphine, and yet it's in the NSAID class. So what that means is it, is it can relieve uh, severe pain, such as morphine, but it doesn't have the abuse or the addiction potential. Now, Syntex <clears throat> uh, got Tordol approved by the FDA, and, and it had kind of a, a tortured path through approval. So there's two forms of Tordol. There's the oral tablet form, and then there's the, the, the liquid form in a vial that's, that's used as an intramuscular or intravenous injection. And Syntex got that version approved first. But somebody at the FDA had an idea that the drug should be given with a loading dose, meaning that the first dose would be twice the normal dose. And this was based on no clinical data saying that this was going to be a good idea. And it turns out it was a disaster. So within a three-year period around the world, 97 patients died from Tordol given you know, given the loading dose. And so what the FDA and Syntex quietly did is they took the loading dose out of Tordal's label. The label is the prescribing information. But the FDA never, you know, went in front of the world and said, hey, our bad, that, that was our bad, it was a bad idea, you know, we took it out. And um, Syntex, you know, didn't want to throw the FDA under the bus because, you know, you want to keep good relations with the uh, the agency that has so much power over you. And so it wasn't widely reported why uh, 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 Tordal had the problems early on, <clears throat> even though they, they had gone away. And so what happened um, is reputations are hard to, to change. And so Tordal to this day, many people still think of Tordal as having those problems from 30 years ago. So, so the next thing Syntex did is went uh, back to the FDA a couple of years later and, and tried to get the oral form approved. Um, and this was going to be Syntex's big new drug because, you know, the oral formulations of drugs, the tablets, that's where most of the use is. <clears throat> um, and so Syntex went back to the FDA um, and so two things went wrong. First, Tordal had this reputation at that point. And then the second is the drug reviewer, um, his name is John Harder, had previously worked at Syntex, and he had been fired by the company. So here was the reviewer um, who, who came down really hard on Tordal Oral, and he put three pretty severe, <coughs> excuse me, three pretty severe restrictions in the label. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So first, he, he limited the dosage to 10 milligrams.
And then second, he put a severe, a, a strict five-day limitation. So you can only get it for five days. And you also had to start with an injection. Now, most of us, when we hurt our back or stub our toe, we don't go to the emergency room or urgent care to get a shot. We just go into our medicine cabinet and pull out um, some uh, Aleve or, or Motrin or something and, and take um, some pills. So with Toradol Oral, you couldn't do that. You actually had to go get a shot to start off with. And, and the dose was about one-third or one-sixth of the effective dose because um, the, usual, the usual dose was 30 to 60 milligrams. Now, some people would say, well, I'll just take three of these tablets a day. But you couldn't get that many tablets because no phar pharmacist would um, dispense more than five tablets. And then also your insurance company wouldn't reimburse for it because it was outside the label. So what happened is instead of uh, Tordal Oral being Syntax's new billion-dollar drug, and this is 30 years ago, so a billion dollars was a lot bigger deal back then, <clears throat> Toradol Oral ended up being essentially a failure. And so there was some use, but not very much use, you know, because the dose is, is so low. And so what happened is it pretty much got forgotten. Um, and Toradol IVIM is, is actually still widely used today and um, mainly by emergency room physicians. But if you've ever gone to the emergency room, you actually might have gotten a shot of Toradol IVIM and not even known it, um, but it, it, it's it, it's a widely used and and very successful drug. Uh, it's just that the oral version basically kind of ran into a buzzsaw at the FDA. Yeah, I mean, we we were talking about this at the meeting this morning, and somebody uh, said, "Yeah, isn't this the drug that athletes talk about?" I guess maybe it's very common for them. They probably deal with a lot of pain issues, and you know, they may get emergency care, healthcare, uh, IV injections of this drug. So that's um, you know, twenty, thirty years out. I that's why it was just unfamiliar to to me and and many others. Now, I, I got to back up a little bit. So how is it that one person has so much authority at a huge agency? So you said the uh, restrictions on this drug, the oral drug, were put uh, in place by one person. Doesn't anybody have oversight? I mean, isn't this just why, why isn't there a group making this decision? And um, maybe can you give us some insight on, on to how that played out? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and with any large organization like the FDA, most of the decisions that are made, we have no idea how they're made. You know, there might have been these 10 people were for it and these five people were against it or whatever. <clears throat> so the only time we ever really know what happened is if we talk to an insider, somebody who's there, or if, it, if it's kind of a controversy that bubbles up into the public eye. So let me give you an example of the first category. So Dr. Henry Miller uh, used to work at the FDA, and <clears throat> he approved the first biotech growth hormone products. So these are products that are given to children that aren't growing as much as they should. And um, he, 
he's, he's talked about this. At the time, his manager didn't want these drugs approved yet because he wanted, quote, more time to elapse to make it look like the agency had really thoroughly considered them. You know, you, you don't want to rush things, right? Because then people are, oh, you didn't do your job. But Henry looked at the data, and it was clear to him that these drugs were much better than what was currently on the market and that they were safe. So what he did is he waited for his manager to go on vacation, and then he approved them. And when his manager came back, he couldn't very easily unapprove them. So that was one guy who just cleverly waited for his manager to go on vacation and approve these drugs. And a couple examples for the second case, um, there was a drug, um, this is about uh, seven years ago, uh, this drug company Sarepta was coming up with a drug for um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, DMD, which is a, a, a fatal condition that, that children get. Um, and the, the FDA advisory committee uh, voted against approving this drug. And in fact, the FDA staff was against it. But Janet Woodcock, who is the director of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA, she basically overrode them all and, and got the drug approved. And, and the only reason we heard about it is it kind of bubbled up the controversy bubbled up into the news. And just um, a couple of years ago, Biogen had its drug Aduhelm for um, Alzheimer's disease approved. And that was kind of the same thing where a lot of people at the FDA thought it shouldn't be approved, um, but, but it ended up being approved. Um, and so, you know, so those are kind of the rare situations where we can see what's actually going on within the organization. So these are individuals. And I think the public has this perception that, you know, because it's such a large agency and so powerful that all this scrutiny is put into getting the best possible decision out there. But sometimes it just boils down to one or two people. It's just really stunning. Um, what if, I, you know, the title of your article suggests that maybe had things gone differently with Toradol that we may not be even uh, talking about an opiate crisis. Do you suppose had this drug been on the market and used as it was intended um, and none of this meddling um, that we would be talking about drug overdoses today as we do? I don't know if there's a simple answer, but I think the opioid uh, abuse problem would would definitely have been lessened. And so, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think what the FDA did with Tordal Oral definitely made the opioid crisis more severe. And and the reason it's not that clear exactly what would have happened is, so first of all, the opioids aren't as addictive as most people fear. Um, but it, it's really a question of when people start using them, what intention do they have? Is it the intention just to relieve pain or is it the intention to use them recreational? <clears throat> and if, if the intention is to relieve pain, the opioids work pretty well, but some people, yes, they, they do get addicted. And so if, if they were using Toradol, that would have never happened. Um, 
But if somebody wanted to use it recreationally, they would have just never used Toradol because Toradol has no recreational value to them. Um, so it's, it's really just a question of what proportion of people are in, in, in each of those camps. Yeah, and I, and I know that's a real complicated topic because, you know, you've got substance abuse disorder, which is totally different from somebody seeking pain relief. I, I know that I get into pretty, we get into pretty vigorous discussions with very free market people thinking on these painkillers and thinking, you know, that the government is just meddling in this market. And there really are people out there who truly need pain relief and are restrained because they think everybody taking one of these drugs is got a substance abuse disorder. Um, so, you know, you, you just don't know how this would play out. Tell, I mean, is it possible knowing what we know about Toradol, uh, it's a couple of decades out. Is it possible to get this on the store shelves and sold over the counter or is that just not going to ever happen? Well, <clears throat> I have no doubt that if a drug company came out with the 30 milligram version of Toradol and it would take them probably all of a day to formulate it that this would actually be one of the most widely used drugs in the country. But the problem is there's no way that I can see for a drug company to make money on it because of, so first of all, the FDA would, would treat it as a new drug. So it would have to go through a whole bunch of, um, you know, clinical trials, which are very expensive and take a long time. And then <clears throat> once it was approved, even if that company had a little bit of, uh, market exclusivity time, very quickly generics would come in and then whatever mm -hmm. this innovative company was that, that launched it, they would lose most of their sales because all the generic companies would then piggyback off those clinical trials that showed that it worked. So it, this is like the perfect drug for some kind of a public spirited um, company you know, or organization that doesn't really need to make money, but just wants to come up with a drug uh, that would help people. But, but the other problem is to, the, to get the FDA to approve it, the FDA would basically have to say that they were wrong before. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that would, that, you know, that's bad optics for an organization such as, as the FDA. <clears throat> um, but can I add one more thing, Anne-Marie? Um, so there are a lot of downstream problems. So so 30 years ago, the FDA dramatically limited toward all oral, and so it's not really used, on, and it's not on the market. Well, in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, scientists have discovered that there's actually an <clears throat> anti-cancer benefit to toward all oral, to toward all. <clears throat> and so I, I don't have to, I don't want to get into all the details, but it turns out that if a, if a patient has a tumor removed and they take Toradol during that time period, they do better than patients who don't take Toradol. But, but one thing that's put a damper on the research in this area is the researchers looked at the, the five-day treatment limitation on Toradol, and they said, okay, well, we could do all this research showing that it works, but then our patients actually couldn't even take it because they can't, they can only take it for five days. And so, so what the FDA decided three decades ago is actually hurting cancer patients today. Wow. That that's really amazing. So, I mean, is it possible that 
um, a drug company could get a new approved uh, patent protection from the cancer use on the drug? Um, would that be an incentive to get it back on the market? Um, I don't know. Does that present any opportunity there that we know? So I, I, I don't know enough about what's been going on with the research and this cancer reducing quality for people that have tumors. But from what I gather, what you're saying, um, you can only take this drug for five days. So we really can't even do testing on it to see how long somebody would have to take it to stave off the cancer and so forth. Yeah, and that's a good point that the five-day treatment limitation applies to, to everything, including people who are doing clinical trials on it for a new indication for a new use like cancer. Um, so it's really a, a pretty big limitation. And, and what it speaks to is that a lot of drugs um, have multiple uses, and, and, and researchers don't discover those extra uses maybe until years or decades down the road. Um, and so we, we kind of need to be open to having drugs having other uses uh, at subsequent points. Well, yeah, and this issue came up during COVID with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, we had never anticipated that we would be dealing with uh, COVID, you know, when those drugs were discovered. And they turned out to be very remarkable uh, for people early on uh, in, with the COVID infections. And then they were kind of sabotaged. Um you know, I, I just, it's its amazing to me how this all works. And, you know, we've got some great products right underneath our nose, but because of the FDA and the way that it's structured, that we really can't get them into people's hands. Um, what do you believe, you know, there are a lot of people, the other issue that comes up is the FDA years ago, its mission changed. So at first, the first job it was, it had was to make sure that products on the market were safe. And then later on, they decided they had to prove whether they were effective or not. And from, you know, from I've, the people that I've talked to think that's when things really began to go downhill for the FDA, because they really shouldn't be in the business of determining whether a drug is effective or not. The free market, the market should be determining that. What, what, are your th what is your thinking on that? And had we stayed with just this safety mission, uh, whether things like, what happened to Toradol, would they have happened at all? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I actually have problems with the FDA controlling safety also. <clears throat> um, but, but so would you like me to talk about efficacy first, or should I mention my problems with safety also? Well, let, um, let, let's, let's talk about the efficacy, and then I want to hear about the safety, because I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so from 1938 to 1962, the FDA's only job was safety. And then in 1962, the rules were changed. So now the FDA had to evaluate safety and efficacy. And, and I agree, things went downhill after 1962. Um, and there's an economist, Sam Peltzman, who did some really great analysis um, in 1974, and, and he looked at these 1962 rule changes, they're the Kefauver-Harris amendments. And just to give you a couple uh, statistics to show you how things have changed, 
Prior to 1962, it took two years to develop a drug. Now it takes 14. Prior to 1962, the FDA was approving 43 new chemical entities. So these are not just reformulations. These are actually, you know, new, new chemical drugs. <clears throat> so the FDA was approving 43 a year. After 1962, that number dropped to 16. So the number of new drugs approved dropped by 61%. Now, you might think, okay, well, what happened is the FDA just started weeding out all the bad drugs. Well, the, clinic, the, the, the evidence doesn't support that. In fact, Peltzman looked at that along with many other economists, and they all agreed that it, you can't really tell that drugs have gotten better since then. Um, and, and, in fact, um, Peltzman, his, his conclusion was – as if there was an arbitrary marketing quota just put on new drugs. And, and that's not something we like to hear from what's supposed to be a scientific government agency is arbitrary. You know, it's, um, and the other thing that really happened after 1962 is the cost of drug development has just skyrocketed. So it's been going up at, um, I forget the number, but it's like well over the rate of inflation. And it's just been going up every year at that rate. And so it now costs billions and billions of dollars to get one new drug on the market. And, and so, you know, people say, oh, drugs are so expensive. Well, guess what? These drug companies have to, have to recoup their investment um, of billions of dollars. Um, so, and, and the other thing about efficacy is the FDA, so the FDA says this drug is efficacious, this drug isn't. So um, that might sound like it's black and white to people, but it isn't. So, so one of the top selling drugs in the country right now helps about a third of the patients who take it. Wow, Wh which drug is that? <laughs> Oh, that's that's Merck's Keytruda. Okay. So it's a drug, it's a drug for cancer, <clears throat> and it helps about a third of the patients who take it. Now, you could say that's efficacious. Somebody else could say it's not efficacious. But let's just say it's efficacious enough to be approved. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've got this drug on the market that's quote efficacious. Can the FDA tell if it'll work for you? No. Yeah. Can your doctor tell if it'll work for you? No. Yeah. So what do you do? It, you, you do what people have been doing for thousands of years. It's called trial and error. You just try it and see if it works. So even with the FDA saying we're going to evaluate efficacy, even, if, even once they're done, they can't tell you if it's going to work for you. You just have to try it yourself. So we're back to kind of pre-FDA techniques to see if a drug works for you. You just, you just try it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, why, why go through the pretense? Because you're right. You, you've got a successful drug, and it's only working for a third of the people. And the FDA is not all-knowing. I mean, it, everybody's different. Healthcare is a very complicated, you know, thing. <laughs> and 
Right. So I imagine that's why you think safety probably isn't a good thing for the FDA to evaluate either, because what might be safe for one person won't be safe for another. Is that kind of the thinking on that? Yeah, exactly. Um, so if we go back to 1960, <clears throat> the drug thalidomide um, caused all these severe birth defects um, in babies because pregnant mothers took it. And, and so a reasonable person would say, okay, if there's any drug that's unsafe, it's thalidomide, so it should be kept off the market. And, and it actually was for a while until researchers discovered that it had extra uses, uh, other uses, kind of like what we were just talking about with Toradol. Well, it turns out that thalidomide is back on the market today, and um, a couple years ago, it was the number two selling drug in the country. Wow. What do they use it for? Well, um, it's used for some skin conditions related to leprosy, but, okay. but the biggest use is for cancer. So it's hmm. for multiple myeloma. And, and I actually have a friend who's being kept alive with thalidomide. It's, it's, uh, the, the drug is called Revlimid, and it's a slightly tweaked version of thalidomide. And drug companies do this all the time. They try to make it a little bit safer, the dose a little bit better. But, but another reason that they do this is it resets the patent clock. So, so as soon as they tweak it enough, um, then it's a quote, a new drug, and then they get, you know, 17 years worth of patent life. And, and so if, if the FDA really did what it kind of says it would do with safety, thalidomide might have been kept off the market forever. And, and again, this is just, you know, for, for pregnant women, thalidomide is a horribly unsafe drug. For, for people with multiple myeloma, it's a life-saving drug. And so it's, it's really hard to know without actually knowing, you know, who you're going to give it to and how you're going to give it, whether a drug is safe or not. Yeah. And, you know, we run into these issues all the time on safety. And, and there's now even a Supreme Court case dealing with uh, FDA's decision making on um, drug safety with the uh, mifepristone abortion drug. Uh, that will be real interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But what do you think the FDA should be doing? So, like, you know, should they be working on both efficacy, safety, none of the above? I mean, what is the what is it, what should we have an FDA for? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> um. I mean, this is obviously a, a big and important topic. I think the FDA should be an information agency and maybe involved with um, enforcing certain laws like like labeling and you know unsafe manufacturing uh, conditions. but but the market and and when I say the market, I mean patients, physicians, managed care organizations, hospitals, um, uh, you know, all these, you know, uh, researchers and, and medical journals and, and compendia, they do a really good job at figuring out which drugs work and which, which ones don't. And so, and they're, they're more um, kind of flexible, that, that they can take into account new information. 
Um, so, for example, um, there's a, a, a group that does these Cochrane reviews, and they basically do exactly what the FDA does. You know, they, mm. they'll look at a drug or a class of drugs, and they'll look at it in great detail, and they'll look at all the clinical evidence, and they'll come out with a recommendation. You know, should anybody get it? Who should get it? What dose should they get it at? And so the FDA doesn't even bring uh, unique skills to the table that, that other organizations are already doing this. So just take away the power, <laughs> I guess. It's, you know, um, and same thing with the CDC. You know, it's no longer becoming a guidance agency. It's becoming um, a political agency. And, and that's the problem with both of these. And we've lost enormous public trust and we're spending billions of dollars on these agencies and they're not really serving what they're supposed to be doing. So I think that's a really good point. You know, let's just do the Cochrane reviews on drugs, get rid of the FDA, save us a bunch of money, send us all rebate checks back <laughs> on our taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you brought up ivermectin and um, COVID-19 earlier. Our, our government spends, I, I think the NIH's, NIH's budget is $43 billion a year or something. If early on in the COVID pandemic, the NIH would have tested all these old drugs to see which ones worked for COVID-19, we would have known pretty yeah. early on that ivermectin worked. Um, and instead, these these agencies seem to be spending their time distorting the truth instead of revealing it. And then you have to just wonder, okay, well, wait, we're paying money to have the truth distorted yeah. by these government agencies. It, it's just, it's not right. It's insane. <clears throat> it's crazy. And I, you know, I just got finished reading RFK's book on uh, Fauci and, and he came up with, oh, three or four paragraphs of what NIH could have been doing <laughs> uh, to yeah. get the pandemic moving and wrapping it up within months instead of years. So uh, all very crazy. Well, this has been just so enlightening. Thank you so much. You are just um, a treasure trove of information. I was so glad that we were able to get you on the podcast. And um, we'll be probably talking more about these issues as they come up with Alzheimer's drugs or who knows what goes on at the Supreme Court with this Mifepristone, but really do appreciate your insights here. And um, thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks. Thanks for talking today. And, and um, I, had, I had a good time. Thank you, Amber. All right. Charles Hooper is the president and co-founder of Objective Insights, talking to us today about the painkiller Toradol. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like this discussion, please share the link. And I also want to put in a plug for Healthcare News. Uh, you can get a free subscription to our monthly newspaper. Uh, it provides a terrific overview on what's going on in healthcare, uh, much on topics like this, and providing free market perspectives on a wide variety of uh, healthcare topics. Check the notes. I'll have a note, um, a link to the editorial in the Wall Street Journal that we just talked about as well. Uh, and thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day, everyone, and we'll be back next time with another topic in healthcare news.